Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 315, Late Winter Turkey Hunting with Rob Keck, and I am your co-host and the guy who has a new pet. And I am your co-host and the guy who's about to kill one of his pets. (laughs) Is that Mac you're you're wanting to kill? As of last night, yes. He went from becoming, being my best friend to I'm ready to skin him out right now. Mm. He kept me up all night because... We're trying to put him in a kennel at night now rather than have my wife's golden retriever sleep between us each night, who is mm-hmm. not the brightest of dogs anyway. And Mac gets subjected to the kennel because it's only fair, even though he doesn't do anything. He just lays on the floor. But it's only fair that they both have to be kenneled since Marlo has to be kenneled. But he's not used to being kenneled, and he did not like it one bit. So he, he did 
I got him to be quiet for about two hours, and he woke back up, started whining. Anyway, I was up all night with that, and so now I'm ready to kill him. But if that doesn't get you fired up about your new pet, which is... Well, I've just got to say this. You were a little testy this morning. Because I haven't slept. <laughs> I mean, it was it was attitude city from you this morning. Oh, and, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I don't normally get that, but you were, ooh-wee. I'm telling you, man, it was, I do good on low sleep, but I don't do good on no sleep. Yeah. But, you know, give me three hours solid, I'm good. I'm the same same person, but man, I was yeah. I was I was pretty upset this morning. Well, but I feel good now, so I'm not going to rage on on our listeners while we're on here. Lucky for the two of you, the dogs got to sleep all day long while you both were at work. And oh yeah, they'll be ready to go this evening. Oh no, that was that was my favorite part when I got up. I'm barely trudging around the house. I mean, you know just barely making it look over and he's curled up sleeping great mm-hmm. oh yeah that's good for you man great yeah yeah well, what, what what did you get because you are not a pet person so i'm interested i have been a pet person my entire life and then when my last dog died and he was he was either an awesome dog or a tremendous pain in the you know what <laughs> but when he died, I said, you know, I was really busy with work and I was divorced at the time. And I was like, you know, it's not fair for me to get another dog to not be able to spend the time to train it. And, yeah. And, you know, it's not fair to the dog. It's not fair to me. So I'm just not going to get one. Well, I got used to not having a dog. And it's really nice to be able to, if I want to go have a drink after work, I go have a drink after work. I don't have to worry about yeah. that. You know, yeah, I don't worry you, you want to leave it for the, for the weekend, weekend, you can just yeah. go. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice thing. Yeah. So when we became, when we, Tammy and I, became empty nesters and Chris went off to college, which was about a year after my dog died, then I, I was set free. We were true empty nesters and that was cool. So <laughs> I've just been going and going and going. So I did not get a dog. That's the giveaway. Uh, what I did get is a circus freak. I a got circus freak. A circus freak. I got the bearded lady. Ah. Uh, yeah. All's coming to me now. She does not eat. She does not speak. <laughs> she does not bark. She does not pee. She does not crap. She stands there very quietly very still and if you are a male wild turkey gobbler she <laughs> is beautiful uh, yeah, and, and open for business <laughs> open for business but she is the bearded lady so she is that i you guys listening to the show cameron's already seen pictures i bought a fluffer decoy it actually was a, or it is, a mounted bearded hen turkey. And I bought it at an auction. And I had a little bit of work to do to take it apart, to take the turkey off of the base that she was mounted onto. And it's done. 
Got her off the base. She's got two wires that are about, oh, probably 10 inches long coming off of the bottom of her feet. And those jokers go straight in the ground just perfectly. And <laughs> she is a sight to behold. You better hope Jeff Buds doesn't come slipping up on that thing because he's after a bearded hen grand slam right now. Well, she's in my garage. If I hear a gunshot in the garage... <laughs> We've got bigger issues than somebody shooting a bearded hen. Yeah, well, so it's pretty nuts looking. I'll give you that. I mean, it, it, you can't get any more realistic of a decoy than that. You can't get any more <laughs> realistic of a decoy. You're right about that. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm I'm, in, I'm curious to know how it's going to pan out. But I've seen several videos of people who use fluffers. I've talked to several people who use them as well. And they say there's just nothing like it, you know, that they just, they'll draw a gobbler's eyes to them every time. And, you know, I think it's got to do something to do when, of feathers. course, we're all just guessing, yes, the feathers and, and the iridescence in those feathers and how yeah. it stands out in the woods. So Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a accurate thing because ducks that's definitely a thing i think all birds their their feathers are iridescent for a reason you know yeah <laughs> they, they don't just right. do that for fun <laughs> that's exactly right so i'll let you guys know this spring how that pans out and we'll see how it goes yeah you're gonna just have like a orange sack or something to carry it around in or are you just gonna put it under your arm how, how you plan to tote it she'll actually fit in the back of my vest oh that's nice yeah she'll fit in the game bag of my vest hard. And... i keep i keep thinking of a, a gobbler sized turkey and a hen is significantly smaller so oh, yeah. a mounted hen would be significantly smaller yeah she weighs i haven't weighed her but she's probably three to four pounds and yeah. she is smaller and it's not a decoy. I mean, I don't take a decoy with me everywhere I go on every hunt anyway. But yeah. those midday hunts where I know, hey, I'm going to go sit on a food plot and take a nap. Yeah. That's perfect. That's that's when she gets to come out. Her name will be called on those days. There you and go. Those hunts. So, there you go. You know, for... I'm not. I'm not going to say I paid a little bit of money for. Her. I paid more than I would have paid for a hen, say DSD decoy, you know, or something like that. But again, hard to get more realistic than the real thing. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it goes. How yeah. long do we have until you might be able to use her? It appears to be that we are 128 days, 11 hours. 37 minutes and 41 seconds. I'm going to throw you a curveball and tell everybody that we are 91 days, 15 hours, 41 minutes, and 40 seconds from Andy and myself whacking a winter gobbler mm -hmm. in Utah. <laughs> uh huh. That has so, been added to the countdown. <laughs> we have hinted around and hinted around and hinted around. At we ain't hitting anymore. The fact that you and I were going to go and do this, and it's all in the books. We've got oh, it's booked. We've got yep. a place to stay. We've got obviously the dates booked. So we're 
we're going. It's just a matter of whether we can find and kill a gobbler. Four, and I think if six. we find and kill one, we'll probably kill multiple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's going to be a, a feast or famine deal. <laughs> well, you and I are going to have to have a talk about that because, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead, but if that opportunity to pull the trigger on more than one bird each presents itself, we're going to have to have a, a discussion. So, you know, the reason I'm even bringing it up right now is because of our topic for this show. And yeah, yeah. It's it... a great segue into what we're going to be talking about. And you guys listening to this, you are all going to know the guest for today's show when I tell you his name. But as far as I would say, he's probably the late winter turkey hunting expert. I'd say so. He's the only person I ever really hear about that does it. Maybe yeah. everybody else just wants to keep it to themselves. <laughs> that could very well be. Could very well be. But today we do have Rob Keck on the show. And Rob is the Director of Conservation at Bass Pro Shops. He is also Chairman of the Board of the Wonders of Wildlife. And he holds several other designations and honors and winners of different awards within the hunting industry. He is just a heck of a nice guy. As you guys know, he was the face and the voice for the NWTF for years and years and years with them. Although he loves to hunt all critters, his true passion is hunting turkeys. And I'm not real sure if he's killed turkeys in more places than anyone else but i do know that he's completed his super slam he's also killed a turkey in new zealand he's killed several turkeys in canada i cannot remember if he's killed the canadian slam or not i know he's killed oscillated i know he's killed goulds so he's killed a turkey he's killed two. a few turkeys yeah. <laughs> yeah. and he's killed a few in late winter as well and so this might be a little bit of a selfish episode for me and Cameron but it's talking turkeys and not just talking turkeys but I mean this is like sure enough real all-out full-on challenging turkeys challenging gobblers and so some good stuff yeah. in this interview what'd you think about yeah. it? yeah and well, sadly, I wasn't able to be a part of the interview, but I have listened to it. My other work obligations got in the way of me being to be able to part of the phone call. But I'm fired up. Like I'm looking forward to February now just as much as I am spring. So <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way, man. I, I just, you know, I got off the phone with him yesterday and I was jacked up. I was ready to go. Yeah. Well, you love, I mean, and I, I like challenging gobblers too, but like with you, you love to fan them and challenge them that way. So this ought to be, you know, right up your alley. It is. Yeah. I've so, always loved and, a good fight. And I mean, it's going to be on steroids if it happens. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah as, as you, you want to go ahead and hop in? I don't want to reveal too much because this is a great episode 
it's a long one so we got we got a lot of content here from rob but it if is you're ever interested in yeah winter turkey hunting this is the one for you yeah no doubt let let's do jump into it and you guys listen in i think you're really going to enjoy the topic you're going to enjoy the stories as well and uh, i can't wait to throw this interview out there for you guys so listen in closely and cameron and i'll see you on the other side see you on the other side I love it. You got my attention right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today, sir? I'm fine. Frog here split four ways. I like it. I'm glad to hear that. So, are you guys getting some rain from Etta or? <laughs> yeah, Etta? we're getting rain. We've had heat and humidity for the last five days, and it has just literally shut down deer movement during the day. Yeah. I can't even get a daylight picture on a camera right now, but uh, as soon as this stuff moves out, it'll change. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, It's been pretty humid and warm here in Birmingham as well for several sure. weeks. So, yeah. Yep. The beginning of last week was awesome. I mean, that cold weather we had, deer movement was really good. Yeah. Well, you know, this I would normally do an intro. Well, let's just run with this thing. So, <laughs> because I'm going to ask you how your deer hunt in Kansas went, and I know you've been on one fall turkey hunt so far. Is that right? No, you went on an elk hunt and a deer hunt. Is that right? No, I'm on a mule deer hunt. Okay, okay. How did that go for you? Great. Killed a dandy. I killed a 190 and some change, and uh, wow. just really really pretty pretty buck and what was really cool was the the actual hunt it took four and a half hours from the time we spotted him with two other bucks laid down and we had about a mile to go but in that open country in eastern colorado which is just sagebrush and and uh cactus you got to use the lay of the land and you got to use i mean play the wind just right and i use an onyx app just to try to you know look and see uh in these literally sand dunes to get around so you don't get spotted mm-hmm. so it was really a, a challenging hunt and uh, really satisfying i killed him on muzzleloader at 157 yards wow that's awesome that is awesome i'm glad to hear that so you were when i uh, i talked to you gosh i guess it's been a month maybe even longer ago about coming on the show initially and then i got tied up doing a bunch of stuff with work but you were talking about going to Kansas on a deer hunt, a whitetail hunt, if I'm not mistaken. Did that get those plans get changed on you? No, not at all. I love Kansas, and uh, I've hunted five different units out there. I've seen booners in all of them. But it's like any place you go. A lot of it depends on the property and how it's managed. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been very fortunate. I've got a good friend that uh, has a wonderful piece of property and manage it, manages it in and uh, anyway, had a couple bucks on our hit list, one in particular that uh, we've been watching since July, and he was steady sending me trail cam pictures, and then there were a number of times he actually went and got in the stand and, and shot photographs, and we watched this buck just uh, continue to, to blow up, yeah. and uh, ended up uh, going during the early muzzleloader season. That's the season I always apply for, and people ask me, why do you want to go that early? It's like, a lot of times it's hot. Right. Well, I can tell you why. If you're 
wanting to kill a booner, it is the most reliable time to do it. They've just come out of velvet. They're in bachelor groups, and they're very predictable. And uh, once you find one of those giants, one of those that uh, is at the top of your hit list, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's a lot easier than during the rut. You know, the rut is a crapshoot. And right. uh, anyway, we've watched this buck in this one particular area, and he kept showing up, kept showing up. Anyway, right first of September, he disappeared, as so often is the case. And so were the bachelors that were with him. And uh, we started moving cameras around in some different areas and finally picked him up again about a mile from there. Uh, just literally moved up the creek from where we had originally been watching him. Mm-hmm. And so went in there. I think it opened. It was on Monday, September. I don't know. I'll get it wrong. 12th, 13th, 14th, something like that. And anyway, the first morning we went and we saw a few bucks, but not not what we were looking for. They were mostly just year and a half, two and a half year old bucks. And that evening, man, it was just a different story. Something something had them moving real well. And anyways, probably. 20 minutes before shooting light was gone, we saw two of the bucks that he traveled with. They came in past us. It was in a winter wheat field. We watched and watched them. I thought, man, the big guy's got to be somewhere close by. And then about 10 minutes out, you know, with shooting light left, man, he shows up. And he was so much more impressive looking at him in person than on cameras. You know, a lot of times trail cameras can give you sort of a a false look. They can give you, they can make him look a lot bigger or a lot of times, depending on angles and distance, you know, can make him look smaller. Mm-hmm. And my buddy that had been watching him firsthand, he hadn't seen him in quite a while. And we both, because we were sitting together, he he doesn't muzzleloader hunt. And so we got to share that together. And I mean, the thrill of watching this giant, an absolute monarch, come down the edge of that winter wheat field he uh caught up with his two buddies that had been running with and they actually they didn't lock antlers but you know laid their ears back and you could just see that things were starting to you know get ready on the front end of of you know what will Mm -hmm. eventually be the rut but just showing some dominance they backed off and he continued right on down the field to uh, literally 40 yards from the stand. I wanted to shoot him even a little further out, but I just couldn't get the right angle. And then all of a sudden, at 40 yards, man, he went to alert. And I think it was a coyote up on the hill. And I thought he was going to bolt. I knew my muzzle real well. And I just literally laid it right on his neck. He's looking straight at me at, at that time. And, of course, I'd shot that muzzleloader a bunch. I knew it well. And I just dropped him right there on the spot. And, you know, it's it's one of those things you think you're going to fall out of the stand when you yeah. have that kind of experience. And then, you know, you just can't wait to put your hands on it. There was no need to wait 30 minutes. I mean, sure. I could see him. He was laying dead there in, the, in that wheat field. And we went down, and we just stood in awe of the mass on this deer. And... Ended up when we measured him that night, had seven-inch bases, and he carried that mass wow. way right out to the very end. Ended up scoring 208 and seven-eighths. Wow. And just what a, what, a, what a tremendous buck. And I just felt so fortunate because this was my second Kansas buck that 
scored over 200. You know, just to see one is, is something that most people don't ever get to see, experience. And then to actually take one, I said, you know, this is my buck of a lifetime. This was back in 2005. And then to take this one, I said, my gosh, <laughs> I've got a, a second one in this lifetime. I can't hardly believe it. Yeah. And it just was, uh, once again, a thrill, not only to take the butt, big buck, but uh, you think about all the planning, the preparation, and then to share it with a good friend, you know, when he was there to, you know, to congratulate. We hugged each other, and, of course, we spent I'll bet two hours just shooting pictures and, you know, just drinking in. It's it's the kind of thing that, you know, once you make that, and it's that way with turkey hunting, too, i found that, you know, once you eventually make that kill, you don't want time to move on. You want to just capture that in the moment. Yeah. And we just sat there and admired him. I mean, we finally got dark on us, and we just started a headlamp, so I still just sat there and just thinking, oh, my God, what a deer, and what a privilege. I mean, I just thank the good Lord for... You know, having had that opportunity, uh, and then to, you know, to, to actually take a buck like that, I mean, it's just beyond, you know, your wildest dreams. Yeah, that's very nice. Congratulations on that. That's a thank you. That's a, a heck of a trophy, as I and all the listeners and you know. And so it's like you said, you know, just to kill one that's over two hundred inches, you anyone would say is a buck of a lifetime, and then. Here you come 15, later, 15 years later doing, getting the opportunity to kill another one and getting it done. That's very, very impressive. So that's yeah, awesome. It really, excited for it you. just, you know, and, and I got to give all the thanks to, to my friend, the landowner. I mean, his management scheme has worked out extremely well. And it's like so many of us that, you know, get an invitation to go hunt on somebody's private land. And, you know, this isn't a high fence. It's, you know, free range. And mm-hmm. he spends a lot of money as a as a feeding program and, you know, does everything he can to, to manage the herd. And, you know, it is just well, it's something that's hard to describe and, and being able to appreciate him. I told him, I said, thank you can hardly begin to show my appreciation for the privilege of being there to do something like that, to, to take a buck of a lifetime. And, and I've taken some other real dandies. I mean, I've taken, I guess now there's five over 180, uh, which are yeah. just off the charts as well. But I've had tremendous luck, great luck in Kansas. But most all of that has happened in that early muzzleloader season. So, you know, a lot of guys, they, they ask me, they said, man, they come and they look at, you know, the bucks I've got mounted here. I said, give me the secret. I said, well, first thing you got to do is go where they are. Exactly. And, and I said, then secondly... You've got to put a plan together, and you know, and and for me, that plan is to go early in the season before the rut kicks in. And so you got to apply. You got to be drawn in Kansas. Uh, fortunately, that unit I've I've always been able to draw, and it's one then that you just got to put your time in and, and scout and hope it all comes together. And there's some times that you know I choose not to shoot, and I may end up with a tag sandwich. And you know, somebody asked me that question the other day. You know, how are you killing a 180 or a 200? I said, well, I know this is going to be hard to swallow, but you got to pass up the 160s, which are just absolute tremendous deer. Exactly. But when you look at that upper class, you got to just say, you know, here's where my limitations are. And in no way would I ever downcast uh, one. I mean, there's been a couple of years when 
I shot some bucks that didn't score over 170, but they were really unique. I'm, I'm looking at one right now on the wall. He's got a 26-inch spread, but he's got brow tines that are a foot long wow. and just a gnarly-looking old thing. And he was so unique, and I just said, I want to kill that deer. And I think that's what everybody has to do is, you know, what is your level of satisfaction? You know, with with me and having five grandkids that are between the ages of six and ten, and they all love to hunt. You know, two weeks ago, uh, I had my grandson, Hank, who was ten, and his brother, Coleman, who was seven. We were in a pop-up blind, and, you know, it was getting late, and Hank wanted to kill a buck. He had never killed one with a muzzleloader. And anyway, I get on the grunt call, and, man, just the last little bit of shooting light, here comes this three-point in. And I can tell you what, I was so thrilled. I mean, I was just as thrilled as killing that that 200-inch deer in Kansas. And to share with those grandkids, I mean, to me, you've got to look at the trophy experience as well. And I think that so many times we, we don't emphasize that enough. I mean, there's no doubt that with quality deer management uh, being practiced across this country, I mean, we're killing better bucks than in this country than we ever have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that many times, though, we can maybe distort uh, the real fun of the hunt, especially for young hunters or new hunters, uh, by focusing too much on the size of the animal instead of the size of the experience. And that's where we've got to... We've got to, if we're going to preserve this hunting heritage, we've got to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, I think social media has really given people an opportunity to put such a, a negative spin on that very thing that you're talking about and, and gives people that opportunity to knock someone's trophy. And, you know, what is a trophy to someone who hunts in whitetail country in Iowa or Kansas or Illinois or Indiana or any any Midwestern state is not the same trophy for someone who hunts in South, South Alabama, South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, you, Florida. I mean, you, yeah. you. there's so many places. And so we, we have to keep that in mind. And it's not our place to jump on to someone on social media and, and be critical of, of what they're excited about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at a buck right now here in the wall that I mounted uh, took some years ago uh, here in South Carolina, and he only scores 138. But let me tell you, he was seven and a half years old, wow. and I had hunted that deer. He was so unique, the palmations. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's it, I've got him there with all of my other giants because it was a really a challenging hunt to try to hunt this deer down. And, you know, when you start taking deer that are five and a half, six and a half, in this case, seven and a half, you know, to me, I mean, it's like he, he's every bit, if not more, worthy to, to be with all the other big bucks that I've got here uh, because he lived that long. He eluded me all that time. And, and uh, so, you know, here in South Carolina, we don't put many Boone and Crockett bucks in the in the record book. We've got a long season, liberal bag limit. I focus really on either filling the freezer with those, which I do, mm-hmm. and then just, you know, trying to hunt some of these older age class bucks. And, uh, I th- again, I think it's, you know, what is your level of satisfaction? You know, what makes you happy? And I think that's what you've got to have at the, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. So, well, that that's awesome. And, you know, I, I told you when we started this that we weren't going to do an intro. We were going to jump into it. But I need to explain to you and everyone listening that my co-host Cameron, all of a sudden yesterday, got an appointment today at 4 o'clock Central while we're doing our interview. So he's not going to be able to join us. Oh, no. He may be able to jump on a little bit later, but I'm thinking not. Okay. So with today being a holiday and happy Veterans Day to all of our veterans out there, and thank you for you your bet. service. Um, but with today being Veterans Day and him being off work, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for him to be able to jump on middle of the day and or towards the end of the day and, and join us. But you and I can take this and run with it uh, without him, and I know he'll be upset that he missed it, but... <laughs> That's his, that's his loss. He can listen to it. How about that? Yep, for sure. Well, you know, I just uh, I want to salute all of our veterans out there. And, uh, you know, I think that as a text that I just got, I saluted my second cousin. He was in the Chosen Company, did three tours in Afghanistan. And, you know, at his company, there were two Medal of Honor recipients. So you can just imagine uh, he was in some pretty tough fights. And... You know, he said that hunting helped him transition from military life to civilian life. And, uh, you know, when he came back, I made sure that uh, his mind was occupied with hunting. And uh, through Safari Club International, we were able to send he and his wife on a hunt to South Africa. Got him lined up with another hunt down in Florida, sportsman for military families, and Danny St. Angelo, who runs that. He got to gator hunt with his wife and two young sons and uh, get to kill some hogs. And he told me, he said, that uh, it has helped him transition in a big way. So all those listeners out there, you know, if you have the chance, take a veteran. Take somebody that has given of their time and their life uh, for this country, for our freedom. And uh, believe me, it'll be a lot more than just them taking a deer or uh, a turkey or whatever it happens to be, it's it's going to be life-changing for many of them. And so, you know, I just, every opportunity when I can do it, I want to make sure that uh, I'm giving back at least a little bit. And uh, with all those listeners out there, I know that you all have friends that uh, have served as well. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, it's most recently or some that were back in the Korean or even a few of our World War II veterans that are still with us, mm-hmm. take them out, show them the fun, and help them to adjust and, and to enjoy life even better. Very well said. Very well said. Well, you know, you, I'm, I'm going to tell this story again. I met you five years ago at ATA, and right. I saw you coming across the, the entrance of the convention hall there, and I said, there's Rob Keck. I got to talk to him. And so I flagged you down. You came over and I said, man, I would love to have you on the show. And I'll send over a few topics to you for a show. And I'll let you pick one out and let's do an interview. And you said, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love to do an interview with you. But I already know what I want to talk about. And I said, okay, well, if Rob Keck knows what he's want, what he wants to talk about, that's what we're going to talk about. What is it? And you said, late winter turkey hunting. And I thought, okay. I know nothing about that. That'd be a great topic. And so to listen to you tell the story of your hunt in Kansas and you're hunting white-tailed deer at a time, I'm not going to say when, when not many other people are hunting them, but it's just not what we have in our minds as 
the prime time to be hunting really big bucks, you are out there in early muzzleloader season and you're hunting and, you know, you you have your reasons for that and it pays off. And your reason is, you know, there's they're unpressured. They're still running in, in bachelor groups and they're much more predictable or patternable. And so when you mentioned that to me about late winter turkey hunting, of course, you know, I had you on the show. We talked about that topic and I thought, I mean, you, you had me, I mean, like fired up and ready to book a trip to go to some walk-in areas in Kansas at the time because they still had a, a winter turkey season at that time right. and I never did it. And so Cameron has just gotten, he's recently gotten into fall turkey hunting and, and, you know, has traveled a little bit to do it. And so he's, he just kind of put the screws to me this year. And he's like, look, you've been talking about doing this late winter hunt and I'm going this year. You're, you can go with me if you want to, but I'm going. And so we've put together a trip. We've booked our airfare. We've got our place to stay. We found some public ground to go and hunt, but he and I are going to Utah and are going to do a late winter hunt. It's going to be middle of February. And I am stoked about it. And so I've got 1,044 questions for you, but I know we don't have that much time today because we've got to get you on the road to go to church. Yep. So I do want to pick your brain about it. So tell me and all of the listeners, in case they haven't heard that episode with you, what is it about late winter turkey hunting that really just gets you going, that gets your blood boiling? more turkeys than you do in the spring you're going to hear more turkeys than you do in the spring and you're going to see gobblers fighting you're going to hear them gobble and it is just an absolute free-for-all when those gobblers actually come to your call come to the decoys it is spring turkey hunting on steroids and people look at me like i'm nuts because when they think of fall hunting or winter hunting they're still thinking about scattering a flock of birds, you know, sitting at the break point, and then using lost calls to call them back. This is not that at all. So just put that out of your mind. My favorite time to go when, you know, Kansas just changed this past year. I mean, they were open till January 31st, and I'd been doing it for many, many years. And, you know, when you see some of those groups of gobblers that we had when those numbers were really, really high, and they've you know, they've had some poor hatches here in a row, and that's why they have cut the season back the way they did. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't too long ago that you go to the 31st of January, the four-bird limit, and you might see 50 or 100 longbeards together. Well, let me tell you something. When you have that number of turkeys coming into your call, <laughs> they're gobbling, strutting, fighting. Let me tell you something. It, it doesn't get any more exciting than that. You know, I'll never forget, uh, it was a number of years, well, I don't know, five or six years back, I had one of the editors from the American Hunter magazine with me. He had heard me. In fact, he had read the story. Andrew McKean, the, at that time, editor of Outdoor Life magazine, I told him about it. And he said, Rob, we've never had that kind of a story in the history of the magazine. Write it. So anyway, we were, I wrote this up, and it was there. And, and Sean Skipper, who at, at that time was still on the staff of the American Hunter, he wanted to, to go with me to, to experience this. He said, I'm, I, you've got to make a believer out of me. 
And so I'll never forget the first afternoon. We were on a ridge above the Walnut River in Kansas, in uh, just outside of Augusta, Kansas. And I could hear, when you put 100 turkeys or more together, there's always going to be some kind of turkey noise, music being made. Oh, yeah. And anyway, I could hear these birds, and I got to a point where I could see across the bottom, it was a, an old soybean field that had been harvested, but in the edge of the field, right in the timber, I was glassing, and I spotted these long beards. And there weren't just a handful. There was a lot. So I worked my way down to the bottom and had Sean come in behind me and got right almost to the edge of the field. And I said, Sean, you just stay here. And I crawled out to the edge, and I took two of my turkey fans that I had, and I just put the stakes down in the ground. And just it was a slight breeze, which is unbelievable for Kansas because I think the wind always blows 50 yeah. miles an hour. <laughs> But uh, anyway, I backed up shoulder to shoulder then with, with Sean, and I started challenge purring. And I found that challenge purring works probably better than any, because what you find is when these gobblers fly down in the morning, they're going to fight and re try to jockey around to realign the pecking order. And they do this from the time they hatch out of the eggs. And they will strut, they will flog each other, spur each other, gobble at each other and so with that you hear lots of challenge purring and that usually gets their attention and of course that call works very very well in the spring and so you can do it on a slate you can do it on a mouth call i did it on a variety of calls and i finally got the attention of one of them and he started bringing the group across that bean field and i asked sean I said, how many do you think there are? He said, Rob, there's no way to count them. He said, it's got to be 100 plus. And here they come, all long beards coming across that field and come right in to the decoys and just, I mean, started flogging on them. And it was just so, so cool. And I asked Sean, I said, are you going to shoot? He said, Rob, if I squeeze the trigger right now, he said, I'll kill 20. So we just watched and he filmed and he had the start of his story then that appeared in the American Hunter. And we let them go off. And that later that afternoon, I roosted a small bunch, might have been 25 or so long beards in it. And we went in there the next morning and got set up. They gobbled on the roost and weren't flying down. And, and my decoy spread, usually what I have, I've got two or maybe three of the original Montana strutting decoys. You can just fold them up, stick them in the back of your vest. And I always carry at least one, most times two. When I'm winter hunting, I usually take three. And then I take a real fan. And what I do with that real fan is that I take a, an empty rifle cartridge, something of a 30 caliber, and I epoxy it to the base of that tail. Uh, you can use Bondo, anything that's going to you know, secure that, that empty cartridge. And you want the open end down. Then I'll take a carbon graphite. You can use aluminum. I just uh, use a carbon graphite arrow, cut a third of it off, and I'm sure anybody shoots a bow, they've got probably a couple broken arrows. And Mm -hmm. then leave the field point on there, and you slide that up inside that empty cartridge. And so what happens is that when the wind, just the slightest breeze, touches that tail fan that's dried, that thing just gives it action. It's almost like a mojo, for example, that uh, you would have with, you know, a duck decoy or a dove decoy. 
And, uh, man, I tell you what, it just is gangbusters. And so we had the spread set up, and I had four strutters, decoys, but I always take a Jake with me as well. And that's what they usually focus on when they come in. They will absolutely just knock that Jake crazy. And, and really? uh, man, I, and I don't put the stake on. I just lay him on the ground, and he's like in a submissive posture. And uh, it is just absolute ball. Anyway, these gobblers that we had roosted, they were gobbling on the roost, but I heard some gobbling down the river. And, shoot, it wasn't long, and I kept thinking, man, these turkeys that we've roosted ought to be flying down. And here comes, I don't know, 25 or 30 more adult gobblers came running up right beside us and into the decoy spread. And one of them sort of parted or didn't get into the melee, and I said, Sean, why don't you kill that one? And, and he did. And he said, Rob, this is the most exciting turkey hunting I have ever done. And nobody's done it. I mean, like Andrew McKean said, he said, Rob, we've never had that story in Outdoor Life magazine, and I've never seen another hunter doing it or even approaching fall or winter hunting in that way. And I've done it now with all the subspecies. In fact, last year, I, uh, lucky enough, I went on, got in on one of the auctions in Arizona for one of the three Goulds tags that uh, that they, I think they auctioned yeah. two and they raffle one. And I lucked out mm-hmm. and got it for a really good price. And I went in February and I got to play it with, uh, with the Goulds. So I've done it with Goulds, I've done it with Oscillated, and I've done it with the other four subspecies. And it was a thrill with each and every one of them. It works, and it works really, really well. And, you know, the the biggest challenge you have is when you've got such a big group is trying to get one singled out so you don't kill a whole pile of them and break the law. Right. So anyway, uh, that's that's pretty much it. I You know, I like to try to roost them the night before. I like to get in there probably, you know, within 100 yards – no more than 150, but I like to go where the you've got some edge, timber and a field, timber and a pasture, where you can put those strutting decoys out that when they fly down, they can see them. The visual part of this is really important. The calling gets their attention. When they see the decoys and then you call, that's what really fires them up. And most times you'll find that they don't walk in they run in and it works the same way i mean think about when you're spring hunting and you use a gobbler decoy when they come to that decoy most times many times they're running and running a long distance if they spot that thing you know out across a pasture or a field and and uh it it works the same way just instead of one or two gobblers coming into the decoy you got a lot of them i mean 25 50 some of the experience I had over a hundred. And let me tell you, if that doesn't boil your water, I don't know what does. You need to look for something else to hunt. And, you know, I've had guys say, well, man, it's awful cold in January. I said, well, let me ask you something. Do you not have warm clothes? Did you ever duck hunt in January? Do you ever deer hunt in January? Uh, I said, my gosh, you know, there's plenty of clothing and footwear out there that, uh, you know, can, can take you through the, the coldest times that you might have to spend, but I've been lucky enough I've hit quite a few warm spells uh, in late January. And anyway, you can you know look at it any way you want to, but uh, you know you're going to see more turkeys, you're going to hear more turkeys, 
And in some states, you can even kill more turkeys, like in Nebraska. You're going to Utah. I think you can kill, what, six out there in that winter season? I think it's, oh, Cameron was saying it was three. Now, he studied the, the regs a lot more than I have. I've just been too busy to really study them. Okay, well, I know in the spring you can't kill three, so it's, it's okay. more than the spring okay. limit. Well, I know that. I hope we get the opportunity to kill one. I'll be very thankful, and if that opportunity... I, I think you will, because what, what it is in that situation in Utah, and I've talked to quite a few folks out there, turkey hunters, and it's in some of these areas where they've got agriculture, they've got mm-hmm. cattle, and, you know, when the snow is in the high country, these birds come down into these ranch steads, and, you know, they get on their oat straw bales and cause right. damage and what have you, and I think it's really almost a, a, a depredation type of hunt, trying to reduce those numbers. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize just what elevations those birds out in Utah go. I know when I was at the Federation, we had radio transmitted hens that had broods that they took up to 11,000 wow. feet. And so, uh, you know, when those snows hit in the wintertime, they obviously are, are driven down into to lower elevations. And, uh, you know, it's certainly attractive to them then to come into where there's cattle being fed. And uh, in this case, that's... I, I know one of the reasons that the limit is more than what it is in the spring. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the area that we're going. It's, you know, northern Utah. Right. It's a valley. There's a lot of agriculture around there. And, you know, pretty much in, you've traveled the entire country, I know, because you've killed a turkey in every state that has turkeys. And so I, I know you've traveled it and you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, but all of your timbers up on the mountains going up, yep. what timber there is, and then you've got the valleys that, you know, will have some sporadic roosting areas, right. you know, along the, the creeks and right. that You're going to find stuff. cottonwoods there along the creeks, and, yeah. and uh, you know, it's probably what you're going to have to put your back against uh, unless you put a pop-up blind out, and, you know, that's a possibility as well. Uh, yeah. You know, when you find out where, you know, these birds are, uh you know, one thing as opposed to using a pop-up blind for deer hunting, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to spook a turkey like it does a whitetail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the weirdest thing to me, but you're right. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're doing the the fighting purr, challenge purr on these gobblers. Uh, I mean, what you said you found that that works more or works better than a lot of the other calls, but are you also throwing in some gobbler yelps or Jake yelps oh, and yeah. gobbles and all that you into bet. it as well? You bet. I'll, I'll take a pill bottle and gobble on it, and I'll challenge purr on a slate and on my mouth call. And, uh, you know, it's just whatever you can do to get their attention because you want to get that attention so they can see the decoys. That's the big thing. And, uh, you know, it's it's... Anybody that's ever watched groups of gobblers, you know, periodically throughout the day, they continue to jockey for, you know, that alpha position in the peck order. And, uh, you know, they continue to, if they, even if they don't fight, you know, they will faint towards one another and, you know, to show, you know, I'm the boss, I'm the dominant one here. But uh, he's always being challenged. And so when you can get their attention and they can see those strutting decoys that's what you want to do and it's just <laughs> it's it's just really a thrill yeah have you been on a late winter hunt where the challenge really didn't work 
for you? No, I can't say that I have. <laughs> okay. I mean, Osceola's, man, I'll tell you what, we filmed a great, great hunt down with Okeechobee Outfitters. Man, I tell you, it was really, really cool. Probably had somewhere between 50 and 60 Osceola gobblers. Now, this was Jake's and Longbeard's together. And, yeah. uh, man, they just came from all different directions. And I just simply challenged, purred, gobbler yelped. And, you know, once they saw those decoys, man, it was just, you know, game on. Hmm. Is there any sort of a method or strategy to your decoy setup that you're using on those gobbler and jake decoys? Well, that's a great question. I usually will take and put those gobbler decoys. A lot of times I, I carry two fans, with, real mm-hmm. fans, with me just to give more motion. If you've got a lot of wind, which can be a challenge then with that particular type of decoy, then I try to get you know, a couple of limbs or something to put behind it so that at least it'll stabilize it from you know, just doing a 360 on that, on that stake. And then I put, I just put that Jake decoy out in front, and I don't think that it really matters much as far as how you space those gobblers. You know, so often when you see a bachelor group of strutters, I mean, in the spring, let's just say you were in Texas and you had, you know, multiple gobblers coming in, you know, many times there's four or five that are side by side coming right in. And a lot of times I'll put them almost shoulder to shoulder. But then I put that Jake out in front, and that's the one they target, it seems like. Uh, that's the one that they just, I'll never forget one Nebraska hunt that we did. It's up on the Platte River. Man, oh, man. For almost two hours, they kicked that de- that Jake decoy around. I mean, we were there. I'd let them drift away, and I'd start challenge purring, and they would come right back in there, and it was just relentless. They had rolled that thing around. It was funny. We had some great footage. <laughs> and finally, the cameraman said, are you going to shoot one of these turkeys? I said, yeah, let me shoot one. And so, again, I had a lot of trouble getting one singled out that I didn't kill multiple birds, even though you know I had more than one tag. But I didn't want to end my hunt right then by killing multiple turkeys. I wanted to go to different setups in different locations on different days. So I didn't want to burn more than one tag at, at a time. I mean, I could have burned off three tags right then. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So do you have any strategy to separate them, or are you just letting them separate on their own so you don't alert them or scare them off or anything I, I like that? I just let them, let them go on their own. And yeah. again, if they start drifting off, man, just pick your slate up and challenge per. Just challenge per on a mouth call. I'm ready to go tomorrow now. (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to the decoys, your Jake, are you facing it away from the gobbler decoys? No, I'm I'm facing it right towards the direction I think they're going to come. Okay. All right. Then once they start pounding on it, I mean, he's rolling all around because I don't have him (laughs) staked. Yeah. Well, and and it's just comic. You'll, you'll laugh your tail off when you watch what they'll do to that thing. And yeah. I think that, you know, it's just nature that uh, they pick on the weakest, uh, the most vulnerable. And I think that, you know, with 
the strutting decoys there and then having that submissive Jake, I mean, that's what they're going to go for to kick the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm just guessing and imagining here what, you know, what it's all going to look like. And, you know, in a couple of months, well, yeah, three months, I'll know, or at least hopefully know, but are they, you know, I've, I've used the fan with a stake multiple times in the spring and, you know, it's just what you said for the right bird. It's an amazing decoy setup. I mean, it, it just, or decoy period. You don't have to worry about the big bulky full strut decoy to carry around. You don't, I'm not to look, I couldn't do this if I had to carry those big bulky ones. Those Montanas yeah. are absolutely a godsend. I mean, the first time I saw those, Jerry McPherson, the founder of Montana Decoys, when I saw him, I said, God bless you, man. I don't have to carry that real turkey fan anymore, although I still do. I love doing it with that because it's, it gives it some motion yeah. in the setup. But uh, I like the old original, the, the very first ones, and I don't know if you can even still get them. I think you can probably buy them on eBay, but any of them will work. It's just that yeah. I'm just, they're easy to set up, they're quick, and I use them in the spring as well. And, uh, you know, I just hate having to carry a full-body decoy. I mean, that Jake's a pain in the butt anyway, but sure. I just put him in a bag and, of course, you know, got it over my shoulder. And uh, the yeah. other ones are in my vest, so I'm pretty mobile. And, you know, one thing else I want to point out, and I've done this a couple times in Kansas, you know, some of the gobbling activity that I've had, like hunting that last week of January, I also found that you can use spring calls, and you can call some of those in just like you're hunting a spring turkey, too. I've done that. Hmm. So don't don't overlook that opportunity. Now, what you're going to find, I would think, up there in Utah where you're going, you know, the, the gobblers are going to be, they should be segregated from the hens. I mean, that's generally the way you're going to find it. Those those hen groups, those those jennies, and and uh, all the females are going to be roosting together. And uh, it it will, you know, you're not going to appeal to those those birds. So make sure that when you go to roost them, make sure you're roosting gobblers. Mm-hmm. Now, they may come in and feed in a common feeding area. You know, let's say there's oat straw bales there at one place that they're coming to you know, tear up and try to pick the oats out of the straw. They, uh, you know, the common feeding grounds, of course, always can put both sexes of birds together. But generally, they're going to go off and roost by themselves. And so, you know, try to be aware when you roost them. Make sure you're not setting up on just a big gang of hens. Yeah, okay. And when you when you have the roost located, are you... Is your goal at that point just to get the decoys where they can see, where the roosted birds can see the decoys from the roost? Or are you thinking, okay, I need to just get between the roost and the feed lot or wherever they're going to well, feed and then you bring know, them in that way? It's always wise to get between where the turkeys are and where they want to go. Okay. Uh, so if you got that advantage, you know, utilize it. Once I roost them and I know exactly where they are, then... I'm going to try to, in, you know, a lot of times you got to do this at long distance, decide, okay, where is it that I want to be before daylight? And, you know, when you've got all those turkeys up in the trees, if you've got a full moon, I don't know what the moon's going to be, but I get in there plenty, plenty early. I don't want them to pick me out at all. 
and right. you know you're going to have to make that decoy spread you know before daylight happens and yeah. you know if you're knowing where they're wanting to go in a feedlot i mean obviously you want to you know it would be to your advantage to try to set up between them okay all right and then I mean, there, it just makes sense that if when you shoot one there, that maybe they're going to hightail it out of the area and go roost in a secondary roost area they, or spend. They could. I mean, I, you know, I like to not shoot them in the roost. I mean, right. I like to yeah. get back off as far from it as I can, but still be in the game. You know, and that means that if I'm back, I still want them to be able, when they fly down, I'd really like them to be able to see those decoys. And, you know, once you've shot your bird or birds, obviously they're going to scatter. And mm-hmm. then you can go to a regular fall tactic if you've got another tag left, and or just let them go. And, you know, then try to figure out where then you can hunt you know, the, the scattered birds, that country I suspect is going to be fairly open and they're going to regroup probably more by sight than by calling. And, Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think your decoys can, can work real well in that situation. But, you know, if you shoot and and they've scattered, you know, you, you might just want to stay right there at that spot, especially if you've got a feedlot behind you. And, uh, but you know, every situation's a little bit different you've just got to figure it out i mean i've had like that one place in north platte river once we once i killed that initial turkey they all flew to the other side of the river and that's where they stayed then and we had to go across the river and hunt them over there then the next morning mm-hmm. so you know it just depends how finicky they are i mean they you know those turkeys can get wise real quick real quick yeah i learned that down in new zealand where you know those turkeys that i hunted down there they'd never been messed with but it didn't take them very long you shoot in amongst them and they can figure things out pretty quickly you're right about that i know i have educated my share of them (laughs) (laughs) i think anybody that's hunted me like the time has done just that if they haven't they haven't really hunted that much yeah and that's how you learn i mean and that's what's so beautiful about this game i mean there's no guarantees, and there's, you know, the words always and never just don't apply to turkey hunting. Very true. That's where Very you've got true. to be creative, and you got to use, uh, you know, draw on your past experiences, and, you know, just try to pull every trick of the book that you can, because, as I said, you know, I've also, in, I think about Kansas, after an initial kill one morning, you know, of having them come into the decoy strutting and gobbling, fighting took the bird back up to the ranch house where we were staying. We took a lot of pictures. And then I went back down in the area where we had hunted that morning, and I simply started hen calling, made a turkey gobble. I went and set up on him, and I called him in strutting just like it was April. So, you know, so that was no less thrilling either to do that in January. Oh, I bet. Have you had any issues with the fan or the montana decoy and the lack of that depth to the decoy that that third dimension to not the decoy have you had it flare any of those not birds? at all okay not at all They're probably so focused on one another and just what's going on yeah that that probably doesn't even 
register to them. No, it? it doesn't. I, I'll tell you, you do not need to have a three-dimensional decoy. Trust yeah. me. I've done it so many times. And yeah. uh, I think it makes you feel good. And if that's what you want to do to try to drag one along, you know, go for it. Oh, but no. don't think that it's a that it's a must-have decoy. I mean, again, just using fans. I mean, I saw it. I got onto the fan probably 30 years ago. It was probably the second hunt that I made in Kansas on the Kansas governor's one-shot turkey hunt. And a guy by the name of Sonny Johnson, he was a trapper, and he had fashioned one. It was pretty cool how he did it. But I went out with him one afternoon, and I got to see how that thing worked. And it was from that point on that, you know, I started using a decoy. And I was amazed at how even, you know, like in the spring, you could take that fan and literally walk up to a turkey with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that may get tried out there if uh, if the opportunity presents itself and we filled a, a tag already. Sure. You know, that would be, and I've, I've done it several times in different states and around the country as well. And sure. And it, it, when it works, ooh, it'll get your heart thumping. Oh, I know it. I'll tell you. I'll never forget one time I was in Virginia with a good friend of mine, big landowner, James Edmonds. We were filming for Turkey Call, and you have to quit at 12 o'clock in Virginia in the spring. Mm -hmm. And it was like 10 minutes till 12, and this gobbler was just, we could see him up on the hill. He was in a plowed field and had four or five hens, and he just was not coming. And I asked James, I said, well, this won't be something we'll film, but I said, do you want to kill that turkey? It was like the end of the season. He said, yeah, how? He said, we've been here two hours and couldn't kill him. I said, just follow me. And I just simply took the fan, held it in my hand, and we were going through switchgrass, Johnson grass, coming up the hill, and the turkey was up almost on the top. And I said, now look, keep your left hand on my shoulder and don't mm-hmm. get out around me. And so we got up, and I just would inch, take a step, and I've got the fan out in front of me. And I finally got looking over the top of the fan. I could see him. And then I held it up. And then I cut to him and challenged Purd. I'll never forget. He just broke into a run. I said, James, get ready. And he was parting the Johnson grass coming down that hill. And he got like within 10 feet. I said, James, you better kill him. (laughs) And he shot and he missed him. And the turkey blew up in the air and he shot him out of the air. He said, my God, Rob Keck, he said, I've seen a lot of things, but this is the damnedest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And uh, how many times I've repeated that with different people that I was hunting with that just were in disbelief how it would work. Yeah, yeah. And I can give you story after story after story similar to that, but uh, it's just, just quite amazing. It it really is, you know, on, especially on field turkeys, it's an equalizer. You know, and, and what is it's almost an unfair advantage to be honest with you. It, it can be. You're right for the right bird. Yep. And and that's that seems to be the key, no doubt. Yep. Well, you know, I could keep you on the phone for a few hours, and I'd be glad you, to talk as long as you want to. And you tell me when you have to go, and and I don't want you. I don't even know what time it is. I'm I'm not even watching. I'm I'm up here in my hunting room looking at turkeys and deer and turkey calls and all that kind of stuff and i don't keep a clock up here it is three minutes to six eastern okay so we've gone almost an hour 
We have. I can probably go another five minutes before I got a break and run to go to church. Okay. All right. Then you've shared some incredible turkey hunting stories with us on this call, and I, I love that, and I know the listeners do as well. We've got five minutes, so can you share a share your highlight story, your highlight hunt of this past year? And I know with COVID, you know, that affected a lot of people and their travels and everything else, but you mentioned those grandchildren, and I don't know if, if it's a hunt with them or not, but you've got one I'll, highlight I'll give it hunt. to you. I, I, I give it to you. You know, the day before Easter, my wife Susan had an Easter egg hunt here at the house. And it was middle of the afternoon. And uh, anyway, we finished up the, the Easter egg hunt and we were gathered around the fire pit up at the barn. And anyway, my grandson Coleman, who is six, he's already turned seven now, but he was six then. He said, All right, Papa. He said, We've hunted Easter eggs. We need to go hunt a turkey. Now, he'd already killed a big old gobbler during the youth season. Mm-hmm. And he killed turkeys in seasons before, believe it or not. Anyway, I said, all right. I said, I know a place where we might be able to find one. And I had two gobblers showing up in this one food plot and had them on camera. And I thought, I have a pop-up blind there. It was one that I put up when I take kids. And so mm-hmm. anyway, I said, I know where we're going. So we went. And when we got there, we got in the, I put the decoy out, just had a single hand that I put out. And anyway, Coleman said, Paul, Paul, I'm going to do the calling. Now he can call with his natural voice and it's pretty doggone good. In fact, he took second at the Cabela's youth turkey calling contest up in Greenville, South Carolina. And anyway, he can call on a slate, call on a box call. He said, I'm going to do the calling. I said, well, buddy, go to it. So anyway, he's calm with his mouth, and then on his slate, and then on his box, and I'm watching down the power line, and we were there probably 20 minutes, and all of a sudden I see two gobblers pop out on the power line. I said, hit your call again, and he hit that box, and they started, and they were running. Now, most times when you got a single hen, they actually go into full strut, and they can take forever to get to the decoy. Yeah. But I said, just keep calling. Well, here they come. And they were probably about 75 yards out. And I said, now, look, Coleman, you can only kill one turkey. I said, you've already killed one. The limit for youth is two. He said, I know, Papa. And so anyway, he's acting pretty like he's got control of the situation. <laughs> and he looked over at me and he said, and I know I won't shoot until they got their heads up. And... uh I said, that's right, but I said, make sure they're separated. He said, Paul, Paul, you don't have to tell me that. I said, okay. So I just backed off. I'm there just watching with my hands folded, sitting there, and they come right in there to the decoys. And he laid it right on, squeezed the trigger, and killed a single gobbler, and uh, he's there flopping. And he looks over at me and said, Paul, Paul, that's how you do it. (laughs) Just thinking, oh, my God, six years old, and he's telling me how to do it. And uh, you know, he had been watching videos. He'd, he'd hunted with me and his dad, you know, numerous times. I mean, this wasn't like his first rodeo at all. Yeah. And you know, to have that level of confidence at that age just really blew me away. And uh, it was just so exciting to to see him have that kind of success. 
and uh, of course, then he he's really a ham too. So we put he posed all different ways for pictures, and uh, he said, "Now look, we got to get back there to the house to show everybody that we know how to kill a turkey." And of course, a lot of the kids were still here, his brothers and his cousins and stuff. And needless to say, there was a a big big celebration went on at the fire pit with Coleman and his and his second gobbler. So. That is couldn't awesome. couldn't couldn't have a bigger thrill than watching a kid uh, do just that. That is awesome. Well, I saw a picture on the cover of the National Trapper Association magazine back in the summer of you and some was it three, three grandsons. grandsons? Yeah. Yep. Three and, grandsons. Uh, there there's some cute ones. So I know you're you're a proud grandfather for sure. Yep. Yep. That was really that was a good little morning we had a beaver an otter and a coon yeah yeah they look like they were having a ball too so that was good yeah they're they, they love it they love the outdoors and of course that's the way we brought them up and i think that you know to make them well-rounded they've got to understand everything that's going on out there whether it's with box turtles or salamanders or minnows in the creek to mm-hmm. you know the changing of the leaves i mean all those kind of things the other day we uh after the hunt, we walked around a clear cut. And we identified, I think, 22 different flowers. With all the rain we've had, it seems like there's more flowers that came to bloom this fall than I can ever remember. Yeah. And, you know, so many times we're in a drought this time of year. But, man, it was just it was really cool. And they got a real kick out of just doing that. And I think we've got to make sure that we introduce these kids to, to more than just an animal that they're going to shoot. Give them appreciation for all that Mother Nature and God's creation has there for all of us to enjoy. Yeah. It gives them appreciation, and it keeps them much more interested instead of making the the time out in the woods all about a kill. Yep. So, no doubt. Well, Rob, thank you again. You know, you've been very giving of your time to the people who listen to this show and to me, and I'm very thankful for that. And very giving of your knowledge as well and i'm i tell you i'm i'm not going to sleep tonight so <laughs> i've got to do something to get my mind off of this because three months with no sleep's not going to do very well with me <laughs> well look anytime and don't hesitate one bit give me a call and uh i'm sure we can probably find a few things to talk about that sounds great i still want to have you on and talk about some of the uh, some of your time with the with the national wild turkey federation sure so uh, sure that'd be that'd be a fun time so good deal well i'm gonna let you get on with your evening and get to church and spend some time with your family and thank you again and i'll be in touch with you soon great thanks so much all right thank you you bet have a great day bye-bye i'm going downstairs to pack my gun right now <laughs> i'll meet you in nebraska <laughs> well, let's meet in nebraska and then you and i can walk to utah from there we have a month to do it yeah, we'll just hunt our way over there through Kansas and just walk on over through Colorado and keep shooting. Yeah. I'm in. It's going to be exciting. I I hope that we have half the experience on this trip that he has had on some of his. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, if, if a fraction of what he said has happened to him can just happen to us, we're, we're in for a good time. Yeah. And you know that was very educational too because i mean he's putting out a whole spread of decoys which i probably wouldn't have thought about without hearing that from him but that definitely seems like a good game plan yeah it's interesting to me that 
he's putting out these decoys and the turkeys that are coming in are really concentrating their focus on that jake yeah they're like hey well you know these are all fanned out that one looks weak let's whoop him yeah (laughs) yeah so hopefully we can have some good experiences on this trip and get some really really cool audio for you guys if we do just know when Cameron and I come back from our trip to the Antarctic turkey hunting that (laughs) we'll be glad to let you know where exactly it was that we found turkeys and where you could find them likely if you were to go to the Antarctic to find them yes yes the pictures will reveal that we were in antarctica yes yeah so no seriously i've talked to one other listener to the show who has been so i know you i know rob keck and i know one other listener to the show that's been on a late winter turkey hunt you told me yours ended up more like a late winter upland quail hunt yeah upland game bird hunt so I wouldn't really call that a late winter turkey hunt. But the other fellow that I talked to said, and he went to Kansas, and he said it was insane. Well, I'm so jacked up. I'm probably going to try to slip to Nebraska in January now, but we'll see if that works out. I know we're going to Utah. We're definitely going to Utah. I'm fired up. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it right now. Well, you got the favor of the week this week, I believe. The favor of the week this week is actually pretty easy. It's going to be right along the same lines as what we've talked about for our favor of the week for the past couple of weeks. And that is to go on Facebook and find Rob Keck on Facebook and shoot him a little note and just say, Hey man, just listen to you on this week's episode of the turkey hunter podcast really enjoyed that thank you a lot for your time and sharing of your knowledge if we don't let these guys who come on the show know that we appreciate them coming on the show it's going to be harder to get them on and so absolutely you, you guys heard rob at the end he enjoys this i mean he's he was the face of the National Wild Turkey Federation for years and years, like I've already said. But deep down inside, he's just a hunter. And just like us, he's a turkey hunter. And he loves to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So let him know you heard him on the show, that you appreciate him sharing his time and knowledge with us, and that you'd love to hear him on the show again sometime, and we'll get him on here. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. So, you ready to wrap this thing up for a week? Let's wrap it on up. Okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on 
hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.